Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. So I have a message on my heart this morning, and I was kind of debating whether to do it in two parts or one part, and we'll still see, but I think I'm going to get it all done in one part. So you have a lot of notes and scripture references probably on the back of your bulletin. We are not going to read every single one of those. Like, for example, you've got John chapter 11, almost the entire chapter is referenced on the back of your bulletin. Well, we're not going to read through the entire chapter today just because of time's sake. But I, I like to give you those things so you can read it at home and really meditate on the things that, that the Lord is speaking to you through his word. So that <clears throat> the title of today's message uh, actually comes from John chapter 11, where Jesus said these words, did I not say unto you that if you will believe, then you will see the glory of God. And the Lord's just been ministering this on my heart at the end of this year and before the new year, just a time to remember the things that he has spoken unto us and to truly believe those words that he has spoken to us, to truly believe the word of God, the gospel of life, which is a gospel of life, eternal life. It's not a word of death. And I want to begin uh, by looking at some things around the birth of Jesus. And at Matthew chapter 2, if you want to open up that, uh, Matthew chapter 2, and uh, I'm just going to read one verse here, maybe two, but Matthew chapter 2, this is a, when the magi, when the three wise men, as we call them, we don't know for sure that there were three, there were three gifts, we don't know how many of them there were actually according to the scripture. But according to tradition, there were three of them. That's not really that important. But there are three gifts. And when they came to visit the child together with his mother, Mary, and um, we don't, even though all our nativity scenes have that in there, it, it's not likely that they came to the to the stable that they came to the manger. It's not likely that they came right at the time of his birth, which is when the shepherds came. It's much more likely that they came sometime later. And he may have been already about, Jesus may have been already about two years old. And we have different testimony concerning that. One is that Herod gave a command that all male children from two years old old and under be put to death because he wasn't sure of the age of um, the Messiah, but he did know that the Messiah had been born and he wanted him put to death. And then there are other testimonies concerning this. And again, that's not that important, um, but it is important for us to understand that sometimes our traditions take the place of scripture. And when we read the Bible, and we read the Bible carefully, it's actually a much more exciting story than some of our traditions are, to be honest. So in verse, uh, let's look at verse 10. Uh, it says that the, when the um, Magi had left the presence of Herod, um, it says that in verse 10, that when they saw the star, um, they rejoiced uh, exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, that's one testimony because he's already in the house here. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, 
and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. So I want to talk just for a few minutes at the beginning here about one of these gifts, the gift that's called myrrh. And throughout my life, from the time I was a little boy, so I'm sure that mo many of you have heard uh, messages along these lines, that myrrh uh, was given to represent the sacrifice of Jesus, that gold was given to represent his his kingship and his kingdom, that frankincense was given to represent his priesthood uh, as the offering of, of uh, incense before the Lord, and that myrrh, which was used for embalming, was given to represent his sacrifice, sacrificial death. And, and, that, and that's really a, a good summary of, of those three gifts. However, when we look at myrrh throughout the scripture, if, we, if you were just to do, do a word study or search for this word myrrh, you would find that it's used in many different contexts. And actually myrrh is also used as a part of the incense that's offered unto the Lord, just like frankincense is. And actually myrrh in the ancient world was an extremely expensive gift, just like gold is. So there are many things that they have in common. Okay, like that. For example, when Esther was being prepared to go before the king, she was prepared for months before she went before the king. And myrrh was used as a perfuming to uh, prepare her skin. <laughs> Sorry, I know we live in this way, age of Me Too movement. Maybe that doesn't sound so nice, but that lady had to get ready to meet her new husband. And so myrrh was a part of what was used. So it was a very expensive, if you will, cosmetic. It was something that was worth a lot of money and was very, very rare in the ancient world. Um, and so uh, it doesn't just refer to death, but when we look at myrrh within the context of the Gospels, within the context of the Gospels, we only see it three times in the context of the Gospels. And each one of them has something to do with the death of Jesus. So as we look at this in the context of the Gospels, I, I want us to understand what myrrh is. It's a very valuable, but a strange gift to give to a child. The thing about myrrh and how it was used with the Israelites, and we'll see this in just a minute, it was used to mask the stench of death, okay? And that's what I want you to understand. It was used to mask the stench of death because the smell of it was so powerful and so pleasing that it could mask the stench of death, but only for a very short period of time, usually considered up to three days. Notice that, and we'll see this here in just, in fact, just go ahead and open up John chapter 19. John chapter 19, and we'll see the second time that we read about myrrh in the scripture is at his death. So in John chapter 19, and in looking at verse uh, 39, it says, and this is after the death of Jesus, and as Joseph of Arimathea had prepared a place uh, for Jesus to be buried and Nicodemus it says in verse 39 who had first come to him by night also came to prepare the body of Jesus after his death Nicodemus who had first come to him by night also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloys about a hundred pounds 
in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And we have something that's really interesting here, that at his birth, Jesus is bound with linen wrappings. He's wrapped in swaddling cloths, right? And that's a big part of the gospel story of his birth. And then at his death, his body is also bound in linen wrappings, or he's swaddled, really, uh, in these linen wrappings. And at his birth, he's given myrrh, and at his death, they use myrrh in wrapping uh, his body. Notice that it says that this is the burial custom of the Jews. So they would pour this, this, this myrrh mixed with alloys into the linen wrappings. You know, they would wrap his body up together with this and with the linen, with the linen cloths, and they would bury that body. But notice that on the third day, when the women come to the tomb, they also bring spices for his body. Okay? And I don't know if they really had a big plan on how they were going to get into that tomb because they weren't moving that stone away by themselves. But they had something in their mind, and they knew that, well, it being already the third day, that myrrh has lost its effect, and it's not going to smell very good. Nobody really believed that he was going to raise from the dead, even though he had told them this over and over again. You know, it was like many things that the Lord tells us. It's just beyond the scope of our understanding. There's no way for us to believe that. And Jesus will say in John chapter 11, that we'll get to here in a few minutes, to Martha, did I not say unto you that if you will believe, then you will see the glory of God. So the myrrh only had a temporary effect. The myrrh masks the stench of death but it does not turn back the corruption of death. Now, the Egyptians used myrrh to embalm bodies, okay? The Israelites, the Jews, did not do that. The Jews did not embalm bodies, okay? And uh, maybe they do today. I don't know, because everybody either cremates or embalms today. But back then, they did not embalm the bodies. Remember that Joseph in Egypt because he could see the resurrection and because he believed in the resurrection. He said before he died, he gave a command that when you leave Egypt, you must take my bones out of Egypt and bury them in the promised land. So Joseph had no desire to be embalmed like an Egyptian mummy, which he could have been. How, how many of you have ever seen an Egyptian mummy in real life, like in a museum? Yeah, they're pretty cool, aren't they? <laughs> but you can see, you know, thousands of years later, you can still make out the features of that person who, who was dead, who's laying there under that glass in the museum, right? Obviously, there's been some level of corruption because he definitely looks dead, but you can still see his features. So the myrrh and these other spices could be used to turn back the corruption, not to stop it completely, but to turn it back or to really, really massively slow it down. But it was a huge process. And, and it was a process, and I'm not making any judgments about how we bury our dead today, okay? A lot of it today just has to do with science and expense. I understand that. But the process was a process that was invented by the Egyptians and used by the Egyptians actually because they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, okay? 
and the whole pyramids and all that kind of stuff. But Joseph, though he would have had a right to be embalmed and perhaps placed in a pyramid even because he was second in command in all of Egypt, he refused the embalmment and commanded that when you go back out of here, and that's going to be 430 years later, you're going to take my box of bones. It's probably all that's going to be left is like a box, like a domino box, just shaking that up with those bones inside because, because, but you're going to, whatever's left, you know, if it's just dust, you're going to take that and you're going to bury that in the land of promise because I know that my redeemer lives as Daniel says, and I know that I will stand up again in that last day. Joseph did not believe in death. He believed in life. And the birth of Jesus is a story of life. So we have two times that myrrh is given to Jesus. And both times when the myrrh is given to him, he's not in a position to reject the gift. All right? The first time, he's a little baby, you know, maybe a toddler age, but he's not in position to reject the gift. You know, the gift is handled by his parents, not, not by him. And the second time, he's definitely in no position to reject the gift because he's already dead, right? In both of these times, at his birth and then at his death. But then look with me at Mark chapter 15. At Mark chapter 15. This is the third time that we see myrrh in the gospel story. If we just confine myrrh to the gospel story, we see it just these three times. In Mark chapter 15, and in, um, in verse 22, we read that they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. And they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh. But he did not take it, and they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. So when Mark is telling the story of the gospel, and obviously the gospel of Mark is the shortest of them all, his, his way of telling that story is in very brief details that lead from one to another, all right? It's like the summary of the gospel. If you want to read the gospel faster, read the gospel of Mark. And when we're reading this in Mark, in any case, it, it, it gives us this understanding that as they were crucifying him, as they were driving the nails into his hands and into his feet, or as they were getting ready to drive those nails in, they brought him a, a mixture of wine mixed with myrrh. And it doesn't really tell us who brought him that mixture. Did the Romans bring him that mixture because they needed him to calm down because it's a lot easier to crucify somebody that's a little bit drunk? I don't know. Did his family members bring him that mixture? Did his disciples bring him that mixture? At least John was there. Mary was there because they loved him and felt compassion for him and knew the pain that he'd be going through. We don't really know who brought him that mixture, but what we do know is that in the ancient world, myrrh could be mixed with wine and it became like a light narcotic. You know, it wasn't exactly as powerful as like morphine or something like that, but it was a light narcotic. It would relax the physical body and it would dull the pain. It wouldn't stop the pain of the crucifixion, but it would dull the pain. So again, we see in each one of these contexts that myrrh is given as something that masks the stench of death. It masks the pain of death, right? 
But when Jesus is going to the cross, he refuses the gift of myrrh. When he's a child and after his death, he, he's not in a position to refuse it. But when he's going to the cross, he actually refuses the gift of myrrh. And there's a reason why. Because he went to the cross to take the pain and to take the suffering of our death upon himself. And in this, we see a picture that Jesus has taken all of our suffering and all of our pain upon himself. And no matter how deep and how great your pain or your suffering may be in this life, know this, that Jesus Christ refused the wine mixed with myrrh. And he went to the cross to die for our suffering so that we might have eternal life and live with him forevermore. Now go with me over to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. After the birth of Jesus, and you've got a lot of verses there. I'm not going to read them all. But after the birth of Jesus, eight days after he had been born, his mother and Joseph brought him into the temple that he would be circumcised because that was the command of the law. He fulfilled the law at every stage of his life. He did not come to break the law. He came to fulfill the law, that we might be delivered from the law of sin and death into the law of liberty, into the law of love, into the law of life. Jesus came and fulfilled the law of sin and death for us. So he's circumcised on the eighth day. He's given the name Jesus. And then when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they came back to the temple. Okay? And so they're living in the Bethlehem area there, in the Jerusalem-Bethlehem area there, for at least about two years before uh, the angel warns Joseph that they need to go down to Egypt. They didn't go back to Nazareth immediately after the birth. That came after they came back from Egypt. And in fact, when you read the story, when they came back from Egypt, they originally were going to, Joseph was going to have them settle in Bethlehem because that's his native home, really. But when they did, as they were coming back into Israel from Egypt, the angel warned Joseph not to stay there, that they had to go back to Nazareth because that was the only safe place for them to raise their son. And if you'll you know, look on a little map and notice, you'll, you'll know that Nazareth is at least a three days journey away. In the ancient world, that was far away. It wasn't easy for them just to go to Jerusalem. So they're still in Bethlehem at this time. And 40 days after the birth of Jesus, during this time of purification for the mother and for the child, now they come up to Jerusalem and he's presented unto the Lord. Now, I'm not going to open this, but it's in your notes. In Exodus chapter 13, Exodus chapter 13, we read about the law uh, that was given to Moses. God spoke to Moses about the uh, dedication of the firstborn male unto the Lord. And the basis of this law is the Passover. Because in the first part of chapter 13, God speaks to Moses and tells him how to keep the Passover. And then God says to him that because I took the firstborn male of every household of Egypt in order for you to be delivered, and the firstborn of every animal of Egypt even, but I passed over you, okay? When, let's, let's go back to the Noah's Ark for a minute. When God sends a flood and wipes out all the life on the earth, except for Noah and his family, eight people, and the animals, two 
of, of each kind, a male and a female, that were in the ark. Was, that, was Noah spared because Noah was such a righteous person? Well, he was a righteous person, but he was a righteous person by faith because he was in covenant with the Lord by faith, not because he didn't make any mistakes, not because he didn't do anything wrong. And the Bible wants us to be sure that we know that because the first, one of the first things that's recorded after the flood is Moses gets massively drunk, okay? And, and so we, we read in there that, you know, Moses was just a person like, like we are, and he made, I'm sorry, Noah, and he made mistakes like we made, make, but he was saved by faith. Everyone is always saved by faith because they believe in the Lord. And so at the Passover, if you'll remember, the only reason that the firstborn son of the Israelites was not killed is because of the blood that was on the doorpost. And anybody that got under the blood would be saved. And if Egyptians had come and gotten under the blood, they would have been saved. Because the blood is the ark of salvation, the blood of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ took upon himself our sin in order that we might be delivered from that sin. And so God said to Moses there in Exodus chapter 13, that since I passed over your firstborn sons from here on out throughout all generations, when you have a son, a firstborn son, he must be brought to the temple. Well, it wasn't the temple at that time. It would have been the, the uh, tabernacle, but still he must be brought to me and offered to me. But you don't put him to death, right? God already told Abraham, no, you don't need to actually kill your son, but you're going to redeem him with an offering. And so if you had you know, a normal middle-class income, there was a special offering, a lamb that you, was to be offered. But if you were very poor, then you could offer up uh, two doves in, in place of the lamb. And that's what we read here in Luke that uh, Mary and Joseph did. So we know that they were actually poor, okay? And that's kind of interesting. I thought they just got a bunch of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Why are they so poor? Well, you know, I thought about that. And I, and I got to thinking, you know, they knew that they needed to hold on to that gold, frankincense, and myrrh for something in the future. But as far as their actual life income, these were not wealthy people. Because it tells us in Luke that they offered up the sacrifice of poverty. But they brought the greatest gift of all. Just like Hannah brought Samuel to the temple, Mary brought Jesus to the temple, and she offered him up uh, unto the Lord. And while they're there in the temple, uh, while they're there in the temple, a man named Simeon comes up to them. And we read about Simeon, if you read this story, that uh, he was, he was a, a man of God, and he was led by the Holy Spirit. He was one of the very few people in Israel who was actually hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit. I mean, there was almost nobody. But Simeon was hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit. He listened to the Holy Spirit. And the Lord had given him a promise that before you die, your physical eyes will actually see the Messiah. And so he wakes up on a certain morning. It happens to be this same day. And the Holy Spirit says, get up and go to the temple. And he says, okay. And he gets up and he goes to the temple. He walks into the temple and he sees Mary offering Jesus up. 
bringing Jesus to the Lord. And the Lord tells him that's the Messiah. And he goes up and he begins to prophesy to them. And as a part of that prophecy, look at verse 34. In verse 44, um, in, uh, let's read verse 33. After the first part of the prophecy, it says, His father and mother, speaking of Joseph and Mary, were amazed at the things which were being said about him, about Jesus. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul. He's speaking to Mary. This is actually in the singular. A sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts for many hearts may be revealed. So again, he's a little child. He's 40 days old. And the prophet of God who's listening to the Holy Spirit comes and what he prophesies about is the death of your baby. That he was born to die. That the Messiah, the Son of God, was born to die as the sacrificial lamb. They did not bring a sacrificial lamb. They brought two doves, something you wouldn't have even necessarily had to buy. You could just catch them, I guess, you know, but not expensive. But they actually brought the, the sacrificial lamb before the Lord. They brought their son, Jesus. And it says that they were amazed at these things. And he tells Mary that this sword is going to pierce your soul because she's the mother of this child. And she's going to stand there and she's going to watch her son be crucified for the salvation of the world. Notice that what he says, he says that the child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. Now, usually when if you've read this, you're going to think that the fall part is bad and the rise part is good, I guess. That the fall, that's speaking about those that reject Jesus. And the rise, that's speaking about the people who accept Jesus. But that's not really the case. Because notice that after it, it says, and for a sign to be opposed. That's speaking about those who reject Jesus. That he is a sign to be opposed. Okay? But the first part of it says, fall and rise of many. Um, this actually came up in a certain context not, not that long ago. But when we read this word, many in Israel, the word many is actually a, an important term in the Old Testament. And it doesn't just mean a lot of people. It actually means the chosen ones of Israel. And it, and it says here that he is appointed for the fall and the rise of the chosen in Israel. And the word rise here in the Greek is exactly the same word as resurrection. That he is appointed for the fall and the resurrection of many in Israel. He is appointed that you might die together with Christ, that your life be hidden in him, and that you raise again from the dead together with him. He is appointed, in other words, for the death of your old man and the eternal life of the new creation that you are made in him. And it says that his father and mother, that they were amazed at these things. They marveled about these things that were being said about him. Now look with me at verse 39. At verse 39. So in verse 39 it says, When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee 
to their own city of Nazareth. So Luke leaves out the going to Egypt part of it, but that's okay. This is Luke's testimony. And it says, The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Okay. So why am I reading this part of the story to you? Well, think about this. Every single year, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem when? At the feast of the Passover. Now, if you'll go over to Exodus chapter 13 and read that chapter, you'll see that in reference to what God tells Moses about the Passover and what God tells Moses about offering of the firstborn son unto him, that that firstborn son has to be redeemed, okay? That in both places, God says to Moses that it will happen that a day will come when your son will begin to ask you, why are we doing this? Why do we keep Passover in this way? And why do we offer the firstborn son up unto the Lord? And when he asks, then you tell him, because I delivered you out of Egypt, because this, that, and the other that you can read there in, verse 13, in chapter 13 of Exodus. So from this part of the story that Luke gives us, and by the way, Luke gives us details about the birth of Christ and some other things that no other gospel writer gives us. And that's assumed to be because Luke personally interviewed Mary in her old age. It doesn't say that specifically, but in the book of Acts, it does say specifically that Luke composed the book of Acts by personal interviews with people. He was like a reporter that went through and got testimonies from different people. And so he knows things about the inner workings of Mary's heart. Like things like his father and mother were amazed at this. They marveled about these things. Or Mary hid these things in her heart because she didn't know, you know what this, this stuff meant. So Luke gives us details that most likely came from Mary herself when she was much older. And then John, who writes the very last gospel that we'll get to here in just a minute, uh, as far as chronologically, the last writing of the Gospels, he tells us stories that no other Gospel writer tells us. Because as you've lived for many, many decades, you've had time to process things and to understand things, and sometimes things are presented in a different way, and the Holy Spirit brings things out through these different four witnesses of the four Gospels, and we put them together and we see a beautiful picture. And here we see this beautiful picture of a family who lives in Nazareth, and they have to walk for at least three days. Can you imagine if you had to walk for at least three days to get to your Christmas celebration this year? Well, you better get going, okay, because you don't have very much time left. So every single year, they had to make extra time out from their business, out from their work, to get to Jerusalem. Now, the law did not require them to do this. According to the rabbinical understanding at that time, you did not have to come physically to Jerusalem if you could not make it. You could just send money instead. Okay, You had to do something, but you could just send money instead. Because remember, Jews lived in, in what we call Great Britain today. They lived all over the world. I mean, it wasn't feasible that they could get to Jerusalem every single year. So this was a special act that Mary and Joseph did together with Jesus because they wanted Jesus to be raised in the right way. 
They made sacrifices so that their son, who is the son of God, and not really Joseph's son, right? But Joseph accepted him and adopted him as an earthly father. And he took the care to make sure that Mary and Jesus were in Jerusalem at every single Passover. So you can just imagine that as these Passovers go by, each year, Jesus is asking the questions of Exodus chapter 13. Why are we doing this? What is this sacrificial lamb? Why do we eat this lamb? Why do we eat these bitter herbs? Why do we do these different things? Why is this happening in the temple? And they're revealing to Jesus, and it's being revealed to him from Scripture that he is the Messiah and that he is the sacrificial lamb. Okay? And then when he's when he's, uh, uh, it, it goes on to say that they keep doing this year after year after year. And when he became 12, they went up for the, for the Passover. And you know what happened after that. They lost him because he's sitting in the temple and he understands the scriptures so deeply at 12 years old that, he's, that all the doctors of the law, the scribes, the Pharisees, they're all wanting to ask him questions and get answers from him. From him. That's a 12-year-old that's a boy, 12, 13-year-old boy. And yeah, you can say, well, that happened because he is the son of God. Well, I'll give you that. That's true. <laughs> but it's also true that it happened because his parents raised him that way, because they believed the prophecies that were spoken. Though they did not understand the prophecies, they believed the prophecies. They believed what had been said unto them. They did not forget the word of God. So look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's kind of just all introductory, and we'll get through the rest of this now. But listen carefully. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15. Remember that the myrrh is given to mask the stench of death to slow the corruption of death, but it cannot stop the corruption of death. And that Jesus rejected that gift, that he might die for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and as we get to the end, these very familiar verses in verse 55, in verse, 50, uh, verse 54, it says, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. The law of sin and of death. So can myrrh take away the sting of death? No. There are many things in life that can mask the scent of death, the stench of death that can mask the pain of death, that can mask the fear of death. There's a lot of things that people turn to for these things, but there's nothing that can really take away the mortality of our bodies and of our death. The only reason you put a seatbelt on is because you know that you could die today in that car, right? You don't think about it. You don't want to think about it. We don't want to bring it up, but we know that we live in mortal bodies, right? But it says here that there's coming a day when this mortality will put on immortality. 
And it's very important for us to understand that though we live in mortal bodies in Christ Jesus, we are no longer, and this is going to sound weird, but we are no longer mere mortals. We are immortal beings. We live forever, forever. And that understanding, we're going to see this in John chapter 11, is very difficult for us to grasp in this age, even though we believe in the doctrine of resurrection. We oftentimes live like dead men, like mortal men. But it says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory, gives as present tense. He's giving us the victory today through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So we come to the end of 2023. We come to the end of any year, and people tend to have regrets. That's why they make New Year's resolutions, because they want to see something new happen in their life, and they regret sometimes things that haven't been so successful in the past year, right? But notice this, that if we really believe in resurrection, if we really believe in the immortality that's given to us, I mean, do you understand what I'm saying? You are not mere mortals if you are in Christ Jesus. You are immortal beings if you are in Christ Jesus, okay? And in Christ Jesus, if I understand my new immortality because I've been made a new creation in Christ Jesus, then there's no way that my labor can be in vain. And so I just want to give that to you because I want you to think. Have you ever thought, this is a big waste of time. This labor is completely in vain. Have you ever thought even for a moment, even after one day's work, whatever you're trying to do didn't work out, something didn't happen right, you know, you didn't get the bonus you thought you'd get this year, that thing or that thing, whatever it may be, and you think, man, this is just a big waste of time. Have you ever thought that as a parent? I'm just wasting my time trying to raise these kids. These knuckleheads don't listen to anything I'm saying. Have you ever felt like I just want to give up? This is just a waste of time. Well, I guarantee you every one of us have, okay? But when I feel that, if I feel that, I want you to understand that that's the voice of mortality. That's the voice of I wish I could just be embalmed and just stay in this this. This, this pyramid thing. Oh, I wish my kids would stay little all the time because back when they were little babies, this was a whole lot easier or something like that. Why do they have to grow up? You know, well, tough luck. They all have to grow up and we all have to grow up. You know, or oh, I can't wait until they grow up and get out of here. It's always some other thing. I can't wait till I get that new job. I can't wait until this thing happens. But that's the voice of mortality. That's not the voice of immortality, because the voice of immortality understands that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And even when bad things happen, Romans 8, 28, God causes all these things to work together for the good, because you love God and you're called according to his purposes. And so there becomes this certain strength of faith that can be like Paul sitting in prison and writing words like, oh, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Well, what do you have to rejoice about, Paul? You, you don't have a wife. You don't have any kids. You don't have any grandkids. And you're getting ready to be put to death. And nobody's going to remember your name. 
Well, we did, didn't we? It actually, history tells us it's tradition, so I don't know for sure that this is true, that when Nero had Paul put to, de to death because Paul was seen as public enemy number one for Nero, that Nero said to him, I will wipe the face of Paul off the face of this earth so that you will never be remembered again. And I heard one preacher say a long time ago, and I never forgot it, today we name our dogs Nero and our sons Paul. Nobody names their son Nero, that I know of anyway. Maybe some strange people out there that would name their son Nero, but you know, Nero is the one whose name lives in infamy. Paul's name lives as a famous name of a great man of God. Because your name is not going to be wiped off the face of this earth. Because your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And your labor is not in vain. It's not a waste of time. But we need to understand that we live in a culture of death today. Do you understand that? We live in a culture of death. I mean, the Supreme Court can pass, you know, make a ruling that overturns the um, uh, federal right to enforce abortion on every state, right? But the Supreme Court can't stop people from killing babies. They just keep doing it anyway. Nothing can change a person and deliver him from the culture of death except for an inner change in his heart, a new life in Christ Jesus. So we live in a culture of death. The music we listen to, well, hopefully you don't listen to too much of that music, but the music you're surrounded by is music that speaks of death. People speak of death all the time. The things that are around us are death. Everything that, um, for, for generations, I was born in 1964. This morning, Tiny's got this little like YouTube thing that she puts on sometimes with these old Christmas songs, and they're really nice. And this Christmas song was coming on there, and it said, it was a song I'd never heard before, and it said, there'll be no snow at Christmas, and then in parentheses it said, Christmas in the jungle. And I had a singer I'd never heard of. So I'm just sitting there eating my yogurt for breakfast. And I wonder who that guy is. So I Google this guy. And it turned out that song was written in 1965. And it was a kind of a protest the war in Vietnam song. And I thought, man, that's like my entire life ago. And all of a sudden I just had this understanding. My entire life, we're always fighting somebody somewhere. There's always a war going on. I mean, we live in a world that has a culture of death. And God wants us to live as those who are immortal, those who speak and live in eternal life, because we are to be witnesses of Jesus. Jesus was born to die so that you and I could live forever. Jesus embraced this culture of death and died for us so that he could destroy the power of Satan, so that he could destroy the power of death. Death, where is thy victory? Where is thy sting? So go with me over to John chapter 11 now. And later you can read the whole chapter. But I'm just going to give you some verses. If you've got one of those red letter Bibles, it's pretty cool just to read all the red letters in John chapter 11. Everything Jesus said in John chapter 11. But John chapter 11 tells the story of the death and resurrection of Lazarus. And this is strange. But that story is only recorded in John. 
Wouldn't you think that would be one of the gospel stories that would be recorded by all four gospel writers? But it wasn't. It's only recorded by John. And I can only conjecture as, as to why. But I think a part of the reason is that there was not a real revelation given of what this story means until years later when John had this understanding and this revelation by the Holy Spirit. I know that it was given to John to write this because that was God's will. That revelation was given to John because it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. But, but still, it's strange that, that this amazing story that Lazarus raises from the dead was not recorded by any of the, the other gospel writers. So toward the end of the first century, when the Gospel of John was written and the book of Revelation was written, both of these, these writings of John all come when John is a very old man. This story comes out with all these details by the Holy Spirit. And the first thing, I'm just going to go through this real quick so we can focus on one thing in here. But it, it starts out by Mary and Martha sending word to Jesus and telling him that your really good friend Lazarus is sick. And he's really sick. You know, the doctors say he's going to die. He's really sick. And uh, Jesus says, okay. And, and uh, then he says in verse 4, these words, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. That's the second time in John that we read words such as this. This sickness is not unto death. In John chapter 9, verse 3, there's a guy who's been blind since his birth, right? John chapter 9, that story is also only recorded in John. In John chapter 9, there's, a, there's a, a man who's been blind since his birth. He's never seen a single thing in his life. And there's not one instance in all of the history before this of a person being healed of blindness who had been blind since birth. And Jesus heals this man. But before he heals him, before he gives him his sight, the disciples want to know a theological, an answer to a theological question. And they ask him, whose fault is it that he was born blind? Is that because of the sin of his parents or because of his own sin? I mean, we love those kinds of questions. We always want to know whose fault is it. And Jesus doesn't seem to be interested in whose fault is it. I mean, the obvious answer is it's everyone's fault. It's your fault, Peter. It's your fault, James. It's your fault, Kevin. It's your fault, Lisa. It's your fault, everybody, because you're all sinners. It's the sin of this world. There was no blindness in the original plan of God. There was no death for our bodies in the original plan of God. We made ourselves mortal. We died ourselves because of our sin. It's the law of sin and of death. But Jesus just doesn't even answer the question, and he, and he says in John chapter 9, verse 3, well, he answers it, but not the way they want. He just says, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents. God's not, listen, read, read Job, please, sometime. Read Job and really pay attention to what it says. God's not about just punishing you because you did sin, okay? If he was, none of us would be alive. None of us could stand before him. God is a God of mercy and a God of love. The punishment comes when we reject that mercy, when we reject that forgiveness. But Jesus says it's not because this man sinned and it's not because his parents sinned. I mean, what terrible thing was this 
guy going to do in his mother's womb that made him end up blind? I don't even get that part of the question, but we have all kinds of weird questions like that for God. He says, it's not the parent's fault. It's not his fault. And in chapter 9, verse 3, he says, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And we don't want to hear that. We want to find out whose fault it is and find some reason that this bad thing happened in our lives. But here's God's attitude toward it. You're going through this so that I can do a miracle because I want to display my works. I want to display the works of God in your life. That I allowed, caused, however you want to say it. And I know it doesn't fit so great with our theology, but it's what Jesus said. This man, to be born blind, to be raised blind, to grow up completely blind, to be this full-grown adult man blind, because I saw this day coming that the works of God could be displayed in him. That I take everything and cause it to work for the good to those who love me and are called according to my purpose. So we see that Jesus isn't worried about death. He doesn't live in a culture of death. He lives in some different realm, completely different from the one that we live in. And when he hears about Lazarus getting sick, he says, don't worry, it's not unto death. And yet, did you read John chapter 11? This is why one of the reasons I think there wasn't quite the revelation they needed to record this even. It's a confusing story. Jesus says it's not unto death. Now, my Bible translates that as it, it's not going to end in death. Because even for our English translations, we're trying to make sense of it. But that's not what it says in the Greek. It says it's not unto death. And then the guy dies. Oops, Jesus made a mistake. No, Maybe Jesus' definition of death is completely different from ours. Do you notice in the New Testament that Paul doesn't talk a whole lot about death when Christians die? He talks about going to sleep. And everybody falls asleep, but you wake up in the morning. I had a lot of questions when my mom died of a brain tumor when she was younger than I am right now. I had a lot of questions for God because that was the most righteous woman I ever knew. And every one of my questions for God kept getting answered with, why, are you, why do you keep saying she's dead? She's not dead. <laughs> Just because there's a big time between the, when a person falls asleep or dies physically and when they raise from the dead. And because you, Kevin, God's telling me, are locked inside of time so you can't figure out eternity, that doesn't mean it's a big time for me. She'll wake up in the morning. She went to sleep and she'll wake up in the morning. Just relax. She's not dead. She's alive because she's immortal if she's in me. And I knew my mom was a Christian. So Jesus has a completely understanding of things. And he says that this sickness is not unto death, but it is so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Okay, and then we go down through the story. You know that he doesn't show up in time. Jesus, I'm just going to be honest with you. If you're expecting Jesus to show up in your time, you're going to be sorely disappointed. He just doesn't do things in the time that we want him to do them. And later, we're so happy Oh, Jesus, thank you for not doing that when I thought I wanted you to do it, but doing it later, because I wasn't ready for it then. But he has his timing, but we can just trust, because, you see, 
getting worried about time, that, that is a part of the culture of death. Because we only have a limited time. Time is running out on us. Well, is it really? Don't we have all eternity? So when you feel like your labor is in vain, when you feel like you just don't have enough time, you know, when you feel like you're not going to ever get it accomplished, don't live with that kind of attitude. Because if you do live with that kind of attitude, it's going to stay with you for the rest of your life because everybody, eventually, the time just runs out. Or you just get older and, man, I just don't have the physical strength to do what I thought I could do. But I just can't do that anymore. It's okay. Our time doesn't run out. It never runs out. We live forever. So, as we read through the story, you know that, that Jesus die, uh, Lazarus dies. Jesus doesn't show up on time. And Martha and Mary are not too happy about that. And look with me at verse... Um, uh, 23, Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha says to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. He will keep on living even if he dies. So death doesn't mean the same thing to Jesus as it does to you. You don't get it, Martha. Martha. Even if he's dead, he's not really dead. His body is just asleep. But he keeps on living even if he dies. And then he says the most amazing thing. This revolutionized my speech. It did. I'm telling the truth. I used to always say, oh, I want to li live to be 100. When I was a little kid, I'd always say that. I don't know why. I don't even know why I wanted to live to be 100. I still want to live to be 100, but I'd say, I want to live to be 100. And one day I got a revelation from this. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And I, I stopped saying that all the time. I started saying, I'm going to live forever. Not to 100, that's too little. I'm living forever. Because Jesus said that if you live and believe in me, you will never die. And there's no way to qualify that. There's no way to explain it. It's what Jesus said. And then he asks, do you believe this? And she says to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Please don't miss this. She already believes in the resurrection, right? She believes what the Bible says. She says to Jesus, I know what the Bible says, that in the last day my brother Lazarus will raise up from the dead. She believes in the doctrine of resurrection. But Jesus wants to take her from a position of believing the doctrine, which is good, and it's a foundation, into a place where she doesn't believe just the doctrine, but she believes in the doctrine giver. She believes in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the difference between being a, you know, a nominal Christian and being a person who truly is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just believing the doctrine or the teaching but believing and trusting in the person and the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he walks with me, he talks with me, as the old song says. I live my life together with Jesus because Jesus says, everyone who lives and believes in me, not who believes in the doctrine, but believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And then she finally says, yes, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, He who is coming into the world. 
I believe this. And so that's good. That little section of the story ends really well. She says, I do believe this. But then we keep reading, and, uh, Mary go, uh, Mar- and, and Martha goes away, and she calls Mary, tells him that the teacher is here. She comes to, to, to Jesus, and when she comes to Jesus uh, and, and, and sees Jesus, um, she says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Well, that's just that same old death talk again. It just comes out again. Now, I'm not judging these people, Mary and Martha. They're just like you and me. This is just our situation. I get all that. You're the Messiah. You come into the world. I love you, Jesus. I believe in you, Jesus. But if you would have showed up yesterday, things would have been a lot better because I'm in a real pickle now. Lazarus is dead. And yeah, that's my brother, but it's also the, the breadwinner for this family, you know, and, and we don't really know what's going to happen next because Lazarus is dead. I really wish you would have showed up yesterday, Jesus. I mean, can you imagine that you know that Jesus has the power to heal sickness and you've seen it with your own eyes, but he didn't show up to heal your brother in time? Why couldn't he? What, what was so important, Jesus, that he had to sit there an extra day? You could have showed up today. And you know, Jesus doesn't laugh about this. I mean, I, it's almost laughable, the story. I mean, it's obvious that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But he doesn't laugh. He begins to weep because his heart breaks with compassion for the situation that we're in, in our fear and in our unbelief. And he wants to reach down to where we are and raise us up to a place of faith and trust in him where we walk above this culture of death and we walk and live and speak in his life and in his life eternal, where we see things from his point of view, see things the way that he sees them. So he weeps and he says, where have you laid him? And all the Pharisees go, oh, look, you know, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. That's here. And all the Pharisees look, oh, look how much he loved Lazarus. He's crying at the funeral. It's so tough. But he's not weeping because Lazarus is dead. That's what they think. He's weeping because of the unbelief. He's weeping because all these people live in this culture of death. And they think Lazarus is dead, even though I said to you, this is not unto death. Can you hear the word of the Lord? Nothing that's going on is unto death. Nothing that you're going through. No battle that you're struggling with. No failure that you've had in 2023 is unto death, but such that the Son of God might be glorified. If you just believe, I said, you will see the glory of God. That's what Jesus says in this story. So they take him to the tomb. And look, look down here at um, uh, verse 39. And Jesus says, remove the stone. Well, that was a mistake, Jesus. Martha, the sister of the deceased, says to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Don't you understand, Jesus? Science. Don't you believe in science, Jesus? We hear a lot about science, right? Well, the science is that myrrh works for a max of three days. Yeah, we wrapped his body in myrrh according to the custom of the Jews, but 
excuse me, Jesus, we're really sorry that our brother's dead and we wish you would have showed up on time, but we are not opening that tomb because that's what death smells like and myrrh doesn't work that long. So it's already the fourth day. He's been dead for four days and there will be a stench. And Jesus says to her, and I tend to think his tone of voice was quite stern when he said this. It doesn't tell his tone of voice, but it just feels like it. He says, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So even though Martha made this amazing statement, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world, she still hadn't reached that level of faith, had she? And I'm not judging her, because that's our lives. And notice this, that Jesus in his compassion and in his mercy, he's ready to go with that little level of faith she does have. Understand? Maybe she thinks it's going to reek when they open that tomb, but they go ahead and command for the tomb to be opened. All the faith you need is the faith of a mustard seed. And the faith of a mustard seed just says, okay, Jesus, I don't get it. It's going to stink to high heavens when we open that door, but if you say open it, I'll open it. Whatever you say, I'm going to do it, even though I don't understand it. Remember in John chapter 6, another story that's only recorded in, in John. Uh, Jesus is talking about eating my body and drinking my blood and all these things that the people can't understand. And they all, leave, all the people leave. They reject Jesus. And Jesus turns around and says to his disciples, and he says, hey, aren't you guys going to leave too? He wasn't worried about growing his church. He was more concerned about doing the will of the Father than how many people came to church. And he says, aren't you going to go also? And Peter says, well, I mean, basically, if you interpret what Peter's saying there, he's kind of saying, well, yeah, we probably would go somewhere else, but we don't have any place else to go, Jesus, because you're the only one with the words of life. In other words, we don't understand a thing you're saying. It goes against the grain of our lives. But if you say it, then it's the word of life, and we're going to accept it. That's the kind of faith that changes things. So the faith that they have is to go ahead and remove the stone, because Jesus says, I told you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God. So they removed the stone, and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. I love that. It's one of those prayers you say so that other people hear it, not for God. <laughs> he said, I don't have to say this out loud for you, Father. You've already heard me. We, I, you and I already talked about this, and this all settled a long time ago, but these people need to hear it. So I'm going to say this prayer out loud. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Get those cloths and that myrrh that masks the stench of death off of him because he's not dead. He is alive. He is alive. You know, Lazarus would have lived some years after that. We don't know how long, much longer. And eventually, he's going to die again, <laughs> right? He wasn't raised from the dead to live in a new body, as it will be as Jesus raised from the dead and as it will be in the day of resurrection. But all these times and periods and the way we count time, they, they, 
they are just, you know, like, like chapters in a book. But, but the story is the story. Have you ever read a really, really good novel or a long book? And you, you, at least I do this as I'm reading. If there's some passage that I really like, I dog ear that or kind of mark that. Because I know when I get to the end of the book, I'm going to totally forget where that was. And then I'll go back and look at those, and I'll think, why did I mark that? I can't even, I'll read that whole book. I can't even find anything. But something really spoke to me there. I can't remember what it was, but the entire book was really good. You know, and I love, I've been around many people in my lives who come to the end of their lives in the very last moment of their lives. I've had the privilege of being with, at the very moment, with Christian people uh, at the moment that they die. And I remember the first time I had that experience, it was with a, a man named Peter, who's, whose mother is still alive and lives in Florida and still is in touch with me. And he was a member of our church, and he was very sick. And, and, he was, and on the day that he thought he was going to die, he called the church and said, can someone come over here and sit with me? And, and I was the associate pastor, and the pastor said, go over there and sit with him. I said, oh, all right, and sing to him. And I was like, sing? I don't sing. So I got one of the worship people to go with me, and we sang songs, and we sat with Peter, and, and he did. He breathed his last right there in front of us. And I'll tell you, that, that feeling has never left me. At that moment that he died, I was jealous. I was jealous of him. Because I understood, it was like, I can feel it right now. This door opened, and he walked into the glory of God. And like, I wanted to go in there, and it slammed in my face. No, you keep on living. What's on the other side isn't worse than what's here. You know, we're going into his glory. We are immortal beings because we live in Christ Jesus, because we are in him. So let's skip over and get through this quickly here. Just hold on to that. Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. And in verse 24. Remember, it's, uh, at the beginning here, I was talking about how we oftentimes put our traditions in the place of the Bible. You know, we got three wise men. They show up there at the manger, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And, and it makes a good movie and it makes a good nativity scene, but it's not actually what the Bible says. And, and the story of the scripture is so much better than the traditions we make up, though. But in Mark chapter 12, listen to what Jesus said to the Sadducees who were trying to trick him because they don't believe in the resurrection. It said, Jesus said to them, in verse 24, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? That's why you're mistaken, because you do not understand the scriptures and you do not understand the power of God. You've been studying the scriptures all your life, but you do not understand them, and you do not understand the power of God, so you are mistaken. You, know, I can, you can listen to people that are the wisest, smartest people in this world, and you can glean some things from them, and you can learn some things from them, but at the end of their podcast or whatever it is you're listening to, if they don't know Jesus, you realize these people are no better off. They're just dummies. Because they don't really get it. They don't understand the scriptures and they don't understand the power of God. So he said that to the Sadducees. And he said, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Okay, some people are like, oh, hallelujah, we don't have to be married anymore. And other people are like, what? I like being married. How's that going to be? Well, you're not supposed to focus on the marriage part. You're supposed to focus on this part. We're going to be like angels in heaven. 
We are immortal beings. God has created us to be immortal beings. And it's that beings of light, beings of power, beings that serve the living God. And he says, but regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And you have to focus on the word I am. I am, not I was. But God said, I am the God of Abraham. And Moses could have said, hold on just a minute. Abraham's dead. Did you forget that God? He said, I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. And then Jesus says, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And you are greatly mistaken. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when God is speaking to Moses, he says, Abraham's alive. Isaac's alive. Jacob's alive. And Jesus in another place tells them that I saw Abraham and, re and Abraham rejoiced when he saw me. And then the Pharisees are like, what? You're not even 50 years old. How can you be older than Abraham? And Jesus is like, you guys don't get it. You're so locked into time. If you had just showed up yesterday, Jesus, everything would have worked out. You're so bound by science. Oh, don't you know it's already the fourth day? Everything's going to stink. This thing's going to turn out really bad. We already know how this is going to go. We've lived through this before, and we know what's going to happen. And Jesus is like, I want to do something new. I make all things new in your life. I am the God of the living and not of the dead. So go with me over to Colossians chapter 3, and I'm going to end with this. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. So I'm just going to read verses 1 through 10. Just listen. Therefore, so take everything I've said today and listen. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So all of your New Year's resolutions, everything that you want to see happen, anything on that list that isn't eternal, please throw it off the list. I mean, it'd be great, you know, new car, new this, new that, or any of that kind of stuff. That's all great. Nothing wrong with it. But don't waste your energy seeking those things. Because if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all that stuff just gets added to you. God just takes care of all those things. But seek those things, it says, that are above at the right hand of God because that's where you've been raised up. Set your mind on the things above, what you're thinking about, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died. Well, let me ask you this question. How can you die if you're already dead? You see, that doesn't work that way, does it? It is appointed and the man wants to die. So I've got news for you. This guy you're looking at standing up here, and I'm looking out at you. If you're in Christ, you already died. So you can't die again. You're dead already. And the scripture gives us, Paul gives us some great examples. Like, for example, I was married to Satan. Did you know that? I used to have a wife named Satan. It was sin. Death was my wife. And I could not get divorced from that ugly old thing. But then something beautiful happened. Jesus came and I died with Jesus and I rose again with Jesus, and I turned to Satan and said, you ain't my wife no more. That's actually an example Paul gives. 
I'm no longer married to sin because once you die, you're free from that marriage. It's over. I rose again with Jesus to walk in a newness of life. That's why we baptize people. You're buried with him. You're buried with him. And you're raised to walk again in a new life. So everything that used to be in that old life, it, doesn't, it cannot lay claim to me anymore. It's not mine anymore. I've been delivered by the power of Jesus. So it doesn't matter what the doctor says. I mean, it, it, it matters. It's important. I, I've been at the dentist three times this week. I have a tooth pulled on January the 4th. Nothing they can do for it. That old tooth is gone. And I've already had a little ceremony. I'm going to miss you, old tooth. I like that old tooth. But, but you know what? Just an old tooth. Doesn't matter what the doctor says. I am an immortal being. My teeth are amazing. Wait till you see those resurrection teeth I've got. I mean, what a set of chompers. It's going to be great, you know, but I belong, that belongs to me already because that's my inheritance in Christ, my resurrection from the dead. We walk in a newness of life, and when we walk that way completely, this is the most important part of the message, so don't miss this. This completely changes the way we act and the way we talk today. If you could see yourself in Martha or see yourself in Mary, good because that's who we are but jesus wants things to change it says when christ who is our life is revealed then you also will be revealed with him in glory therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead that literally says put the members of your earthly body to death as regarding immorality impurity passion evil desire greed which amounts to idolatry for it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. So all those temptations that bring the wrath of God upon the sons of disobedience, I consider the members of my body to be dead to those things. That's not my wife anymore. I'm not married to the devil anymore, husband, whatever you want to use in that example. But I'm not married to that anymore. I don't have to be that way anymore. I've been delivered from that, and I consider these things to be dead in me. So that changes my attitude. And then it says, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked. So if it's something I used to walk in, I don't have to walk in it anymore. No, you don't have to be an oholic, whatever oholic you are, for the rest of your life. I used to walk in that, but I'm delivered from that now. And so I have to consider these things to be dead in me. And then he says, but now, verse 8, you also put them all aside. And listen to this list. Anger. How many of you get angry and have a problem with anger? Don't raise your hands. <laughs> anger is a symptom of a culture of death. There's nothing to be angry about when you're an immortal. Anger, but we all have the problems, right? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Stop cussing so much. Stop saying those words of death. Why do you like to say, damn it, damn it, damn it? That's okay to say. It's in the King James Bible. I'm not going to say the other words up here. Damn what? I don't want to be damned. Why don't I say, bless it, bless it, bless it? I mean, what are we speaking out of our mouths? Think about it. This is what he says. Abusive speech from your mouth. You're speaking out of the culture of death. And I know it's hard because that's all you hear all the time. 
Okay? It's hard. I mean, I did not realize when I moved back to America seven-something years ago that people started using the F word everywhere. Because when I was a kid, that was like, you know, locker room talk kind of thing. Nobody said that out on the street. No coach said that. They said all kinds of stuff, but not that. I never heard my dad say that once. I heard him say all kinds of stuff, but not that. And it's just everywhere now. And the more you hear it, and I was in shock, but then you're later, you live here, you hear it, you hear it, you hear it, you hear it, you hear it in the grocery store, you hear it there, you hear it here, and you're not in shock anymore. But that doesn't change the fact that it comes from the culture of death. So he says, stop talking like that and stop lying to each other because you've laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So if we live for all eternity, if Jesus promised that we will see the glory of God, if we really believe that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes, if we really believe that Jesus gives us the victory over death in our lives, then there's two things it tells us that we need to do here. We need to put to death those things that bring the wrath of God on the world. We need to change the way we act. We need to treat each other the way that we want to be treated. And we need to walk in love. Even with those, and maybe especially with those who are our enemies. And then, probably most importantly, because it's hard to change the way we act when we don't change the way we speak. We need to talk, stop talking death. We need to get the speech of death out of our mouths, those words that reek with the stench of death. And we need to be those who fill our mouths with the blessings of the Lord. And I can promise you this, that if we watch what we say and we watch how we act, it will change our entire attitude. It will change everything around us. Because there will be things coming in this new year that will give you cause and reason to be discouraged. You know that that can happen. You know that it will happen. You'll hear things that will be a direct attack from Satan. But when you walk together with Jesus, you never feel like, well, Jesus showed up too late. It's not going to work out now. You know that if you believe in him, if you live and you believe in him, then you will never die. You live for all eternity. So let's stand together. Uh, it went really long, but... I had to get it all out today. Father, we just give you praise and glory. I thank you for your word this morning. And we hope you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urringtonvillianfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.